0: If you've been around Calvary 316 for any length of time, it it doesn't take long for you to realize that we're very much a grace place. We love what I would call the blessed doctrine of God's grace. That God's grace changes everything. And that when you really grasp the implications of grace, more than everything It changes you. Our church wasn't always like that. As a matter of fact, I was having a conversation with one of our elders uh, last week, and he asked the question, Zach, when did grace really hit you? Like, when did the light bulb go off? It was a clear moment. So when? I'm curious. Was it the Galatians series that we did? So I told this gentleman, I said, well, the Galatians series had a lot to do with it. We had a series, we titled it Outlaw Church. What life outside the law, what life in grace really looked like. A verse by verse, chapter by chapter study through Galatians. And yes, it is absolutely true that it was that series that I think changed the entire heartbeat of Calvary 3.16 of what our emphasis was. It it was almost like the Lord equipped us with a different set of glasses. Not just glasses that changed how we saw the world and how we saw ourselves and each other, but even how we saw Scripture. Every word of Scripture oozes God's grace. As mentioned, if you've been around for any period of time, almost every study comes back to grace. But the truth is that that's not where it began for me. For me, the grace grace discussion went back further than Galatians. And And it frankly occurred in the midst of a series we did before that through the book of Acts. We were working our way through the book of Acts, and we got to Acts chapter 15. And in Acts chapter 15, the Apostle Paul has finished uh, his first missionary journey in the region of Galatia, present day Turkey. He's come back to Antioch. A dispute arose, and then they went to Jerusalem. And what we find in Acts 15 is what's known as the Jerusalem Council. And the discussion was really, what is the gospel? What is the, the essence of salvation? Do Gentiles need to become Jews? Apart from Acts 15, Christianity wouldn't exist. It was a pivotal moment. And I'll never forget, as I was working through a chapter that had always been complex to me, the Lord was speaking. I was beginning to see things from an angle I had never seen before, a perspective that was new. And it was in the midst of of prepping for the study in Acts 15 that this flood of grace started to to, to overcome me. You wanna call it the the light bulb went off? I can remember the moment. One idea changed everything for me and unlocked what grace is really all about from a very application, not just an intelligent standpoint, but an application. It affects how we live and what a church community should look like. I even remembered in that moment turning to a legal pad and writing the words, outlaw church, Galatians. Now, I won't say that I I had it all together at that point, but that was the first step. Now, the second step ends up being, honestly, Galatians chapter 2, which piggybacks off of Acts 15. So if you turn to Galatians 2, we're going to work our way through the first 14 verses. We'll start with just the first 10. The title of this morning's message is Limiting Liberty. We read verse 1 of Galatians 2, Paul writing to not one specific church, but a collection of churches in Galatia, a region. Paul says that after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Barnabas was his running buddy. And I took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel, which I preached among the Gentiles, speaking of his time in Galatia. But privately, to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred, this private meeting. It occurred because of false brethren, secretly brought in, Paul adds, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. To whom, Paul continues, we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man, Paul being a a little snarky. He said, For those who seemed to be something, they added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me and the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, the Jews, also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles, that when James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. Now, moving from his introduction in Galatians chapter one, Paul wastes no time recounting his first run-in with a crew of false teachers who had now come to Galatia peddling a gospel distortion. Now, I don't have time to recap the three types of gospel distortions. You can go to the Galatian series and get this more in depth. Other than just to note that the gospel boldly declares grace, period. It's all you need. It's grace and it's grace alone. But any time you find yourself taking the period and replacing it with a comma, you're in danger. For example, any time it's not grace period, grace alone, grace enough, but it's grace, comma, and, well, do these things. You're entering a gospel distortion that's called legalism. That's not the only one, though. In addition to grace and do these things, we distort the gospel by also saying grace, comma, but, don't do these things. We, we like to give things that you need to do, we add to the gospel, or things you shouldn't do, so we, re, we subtract from the gospel. Or we say, it, it's grace, comma. so I can do anything. Also, a gospel distortion. In a parallel account recorded in Acts 15, verse 1, we're told that these same men that Paul is referencing had come down from Judea to Antioch. This is a town in Syria. To teach the brethren that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So the challenge here is the essence of grace, period, or the essence of salvation. Now, Paul's point in bringing these things up is to make it known to his Galatian audience that he was not only familiar with the men that had now come to them, but that the very point of contention that they were stirring back up, had already been settled years beforehand. Now, in recounting these events, Paul is making three very important points. One, the gospel message that he had received, he had received it directly from Jesus. It had not been influenced by the apostles in any way. It's the essence of what what he's communicating when he writes, for those who seem to be something, added nothing to me. There was nothing new. I got a revelation from Jesus. This was not from the apostles. His second point here is that while that may have been the case, though, the the apostles specifically mentoring Peter, James, and John, these pillars, had not only rejected the heresies that had been peddled by the same men that were now in Galatia, but they completely agreed with the gospel message that Paul was preaching. So Paul is saying, one, this message of grace alone, grace period, I got from Jesus, man. So if you have a problem with it, you have a problem with Jesus. Two, while I didn't get it from the apostles, what's important is that they confirmed it. They agreed. We were consistent on the same page. Paul not only explains that Titus was with him and that Titus was a Greek, but then he says that Titus wasn't compelled to be circumcised specifically by the arguments of the false brethren saying you had to be circumcised to be saved. Not just that, but the apostles, they seem to not find circumcision necessary, only further validating Paul's overarching point. This is why Paul says that when it was all over, please know, we left this Jerusalem council, this meeting, and they gave me and Barnabas, my bro, the right hand of fellowship. But Paul's third point is that he affirms, yes, the gospel of grace was given to him by Jesus. To this gospel of grace is the same message that the apostles believed in. But thirdly, it's the same gospel both if you're Jewish or you're Gentile. Paul says, I'll read it again. For the gospel for the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, was well, committed to me. The gospel for the circumcised was for Peter. And then he adds that Jesus, who worked effectively in Peter for his ministry, was also working effectively in me. Same gospel, same Jesus, different audiences. Now, as we seek to unpack the inner workings of this passage, keep in mind that these false teachers had come from Judea, Jerusalem, had gone through Antioch, had now find themselves in Galatia. And they're preaching two distortions. They're saying, yes, grace is awesome, man. Grace is unbelievable. It's powerful. But that's not the whole message. That's what they're saying. That is not grace and grace alone, but it's grace. And then there's some things you need to do for Jesus. And not only that, but, but it's grace, but there's some other things you need to refrain from doing. They were teaching here, these Gentiles, that the essential nature of salvation was Jesus plus physical circumcision and an adherence to the dietary laws of Moses laid out in the law. Now, since Paul had already confronted these heresies back in Acts 15, he has no problem now exposing their true intentions. These, quote, false brethren, were intentionally desiring to move the churches and the believers, the Christians from Galatia, don't miss this, They were trying to move them from, what does he say? The liberty they had in Christ. Where? Well, Paul says, back to bondage. Liberty to bondage. Now, in Greek literature, this word that Paul uses for liberty, it's a fascinating word. And it carried with it a very particular and specific connotation. The word liberty used here, the Greek word, spoke of a unique legal transaction by which a slave was purchased and freed, not by a mere mortal, but instead through the direct intervention of a god. The slave couldn't provide the necessary funds to purchase his own freedom, and so a god paid his debt into the temple treasury. And as a result, the God was given a receipt he handed to the slave, containing specifically the words, in Greek mythology, for freedom. His debt had been paid for freedom. It wasn't for servitude. The God wasn't buying the individual so that the individual could serve him. He was solely purchasing the individual to set him free from anyone and everything. And what made that transaction so unique was that because the individual technically is the property of God, set free, no man would ever possess the right or legal standing to enslave that person ever again. It was a literal get-out-of-jail-free card. You see, in using this word liberty with all of its connotations, Paul is stressing to his Galatian audience, which, mind you, was very familiar with the implications of this particular word, he is stressing the completeness and the utter totality of this liberty that they had been given in Christ Jesus. The freedom provided in Christ's atoning work on the cross, it possessed a momentary and comprehensive characteristic indicating that person was set free by what Jesus did, not just for the moment, but for all time. It was done once and once for all. Didn't need to happen again. (laughs) Remember back to Jesus' final words on the cross. As he's dying to atone for the sins of the world, we're told that he cried out in the Greek, before breathing his last, the word to The word literally meaning what? It is finished. It's done. Grace, period. Nothing to be added. Through Jesus' death, your sinful debt has been paid in full. Please know that. How glorious. How liberating. Jesus' sacrifice on Mount Calvary. Was enough for your permanent freedom. His work given to you, and you get the receipt I am free indeed. It's with that in mind that you can understand why Paul calls these gospel distorters false brethren. You see, no man has either the right or the legal standing to re-enslave a person that Jesus died to set free. And don't forget what they were trying to do, trying to move them from liberty back to bondage. You know, as Jesus so defiantly declared to the religious leaders in John 8, verse 36, he said, if the Son makes you free, what? You shall be free indeed. I am sad to say that the joy that we should find in this newfound freedom, the joy you and I should have and the liberty given to us by Jesus has been largely neutered within many church communities. You know, take a poll of the world, one-word characteristics of Christians. Like, how far down the list do you really have to go to get freedom, liberty? It's typically prudes, No fun, that's two words, hyphen. Lame, killjoys. Freedom, liberty, joy? Not often characteristics of the church for most. And yet it should be, and it's sad. It's a shame, friend, that our liberty, this liberty Jesus died to give us, and therefore the Christian culture it should yield has been relegated to the weakest among us. I am sure you, as I, have found yourself in a dynamic at some point or another where you were instructed by a mentor or pastor or someone in leadership that you needed to lay aside a freedom. And And then it's added, in order to what? Prefer the weaker brethren. Regrettably, not only is such a position totally unbiblical, but the very idea itself, it does something tragic. It breeds legalism instead of encouraging people to a greater understanding of the gospel. Now, before I get to this issue of controversy and explain why any attempt at limiting liberty does nothing more than restrict our ability to fully grasp the implications of grace that breaking free of of legalism is essential if you want to discover the deeper waters of God's grace. I need to first take some time and explain two things. First, what Jesus has actually freed us from, that's important. And therefore, I need to explain the underlying purpose for our newfound liberty in Jesus. Understand the law. The law of Moses was purely diagnostic. The perfect law of God was given to man for what reason? Well, it was given to reveal to man how far short of God's glory he had really fallen. Diagnostic. Compare myself to the law and my only conclusion is, man, I'm in trouble. I'm really not that good. And that's true. You see, the law of Moses, it towered over humanity, declaring without question that no man could ever, ever be good enough. And then by default, all men, because we can't be good enough, deserve death and judgment as a result of our rebellion against God. That was the purpose of the law, diagnostic. Because the law set a standard that no man would ever be able to dream measuring up to, the law by its very nature, and don't miss this, was condemning. Like That was kind of the point, to condemn you. Because the law demands now a debt that no man can satisfy to be justified before God, the law declares that every person is unrighteous. Unrighteous before God, and it's the law that condemns every man to hell. And yet, through Jesus' atoning death on the cross, he satisfied the debt of death Demanded by the law, meaning that today, if you're found in Christ Jesus, if Jesus has freed you from a debt you could not pay, the implications are that right now you're free. Free from what? Free from both the law's requirements and its condemnation. Because it's the law itself that does what? Because you're in Jesus, what does the law now say about you? It gloriously declares you and me righteous. Righteous before God. No condemnation, because when it sees you, it sees Jesus and his righteousness. So it no longer declares you're not good enough, it declares he was more than sufficient. This is why Paul would boldly declare in Romans 8.1 that there is No condemnation. To whom? To those in Christ Jesus. You see, in Christ, you and I, we're outlaws, literally. Because the law has already fulfilled its role in our lives. We don't need the law. We're out from under the law. We're in a whole new frontier. Through God's grace, period this unmerited favor of God given to us through Jesus, though none of us deserved it. It's through his grace that you and I have been made righteous. As God now sees you how? You know, we use this word justified. Aside from being a pretty good television show on FX. The word justified, it means, and I know it's corny, but it's so true. It means that when God sees you, he sees you just as if I'd, what? Never sinned. Think about that. That when God sees you, because he sees Jesus, he sees you just as if you'd. Never sinned. Now think about your sins. Realize God doesn't. And yet, always remember, our liberty from the law and its condemnation, and its judgment. It had a purpose. Whereas the law demanded that we all live in such a way to please God, Jesus freed us from that expectation, extending to us God's favor free, without a string attached. For what reason? So we could be free to live a life that pleased God. Think of it this way. Isn't it true love is a much more powerful influencer of human behavior than rules and law? I'll give you an example. I don't need to hear a word to know that a young man is smitten. I don't need to hear a word that a young man is now head over heels in love with a woman. And here's why. Every single life change that his parents had been barking at him for years has immediately changed. It didn't take a law, it didn't take a rule. He fell in love and he's like, yeah, man, I gotta start showering every day. I should wear some deodorant. I need a haircut. I should get a job. Immediately, no rules, no law. His parents have been preaching that message for years. It took one glance from a woman. And it immediately changed his behavior. The power of love. It's only love demonstrated through kindness that can ever soften a hardened heart. It's only love that can soften yours. And you see, this is what grace, period, this unconditional love and favor of God, this is what it should accomplish in you. You see, grace, it frees you to obey God, not because you have to, but because now you want to. Why wouldn't you? It's freedom, not obligation. Whereas the law demanded that we all work really hard to live the right way, God's grace enables each of us to live the right way, why? because it's just a natural reciprocation of this love I've been given from God. Why wouldn't I? Switches from I have to. This is why the accusation, and you'll hear it often, I've been the recipient of it. The accusation that the whole concept of grace period is dangerous. You know, people will say that. Grace period, man, that's dangerous. That creates a dangerous culture. Because you know what? Such a a doctrine, such a presentation, it creates a license for sin. You ever heard that? Creates a license for sin. A license for wickedness. And yet, I, I couldn't agree more with such an assertion But when someone makes such an assertion, you know what it tells me? It actually reveals that the person doesn't even know what grace is about in the first place. You see, Jesus, friend, did not die on the cross so you could remain in rebellion against God. Like, that would be silly, right? Like, Jesus died on the cross so that you could have communion with God. You see, forced behavioral modification through rules and laws imposed has been replaced with the natural behavior modification that's yielded in a love relationship with Jesus I get to enjoy. The truth. If you fall into sin, it's not grace's fault. It's you're an idiot. Don't blame grace. You see, the reality is that that it's not grace that led you into sin. It's your inability to take grace far enough. It's not that you took it too far. You didn't go far enough. Because grace never, ever, ever leads a person into rebellion or sin. That's not what it's designed to do. Sadly, there are those who try to build the argument that while all this may be true, the outlaw concept is still misguided. And they'll say, because law, it still plays an important life, an important role in the life of a Christian. Like like many claim that it's the law, that it's diagnostic powers are still relevant because if a Christian is in sin, you can use the law to get them back to Jesus. That's the argument. And yet I think This is tragic and misguided because it not only abandons the power of grace which changed me to begin with, but it puts my focus on the wrong thing. You see, when the law is used to address sin in the life of a believer, and what do I mean by by that? When someone in sin, the approach is okay, I know you blew it. Here's 12 steps for you to get back on track. Here's three or four books. Let's develop some disciplines. Here's some rules and some laws and some ways that now you need to get back on the right track as opposed to saying, man, (laughs) you just validated that you're an idiot. Let's get back to Jesus. Law. When we use law in the life of a believer, this is really what happens. Let me give you the two results. One, more often than not, it yields a condemnation of the believer. Don't forget that's what the law is about, right? Right? Condemning you. I mean, the law is really good at hammering home what reality. I ain't good enough. I'm a a sinful sinner. I let God down. I'm not deserving. I mean, the law is really good at making someone that feels terrible feel even more terrible. I mean, it's great at that. But, But here's the other thing that it can do. It can then yield a believer to now excuse his sin. Well, how does that work, Zach? Don't forget what the law does. The law is diagnostic, which means if you're using the law in the life of a believer, what does the diagnostic read? The law reminds the believer that in spite of their sin, they're still righteous, and they're still justified before God and Jesus. Now, that's a glorious truth, But in such a dynamic, what ends up happening? The law ends up fostering a grace, (laughs) so I can do anything, distortion. This is why, instead of directing a believer in sin to the law, rules, 12 steps, we've got to just point them back to Jesus. This is why we have communion available every Sunday. So when you come in here and the law's beating you up and defeating you and you're like, I ain't worthy and I can't do this, the answer is yes, fantastic, come to the table. And be reminded that you don't have to because he's done it and let that do something inside of you. You see what I'm saying? You see, when we get our eyes back to Jesus, we get our eyes back to the source of our right standing before God, which is what? What you do or what he did. No, it's His grace, not your works. And it's when we come back to this place that it's now impossible to stand an either condemnation over or to justify the continuation of sin, especially in light of the sacrifice He made to pay for these things. And yet, there is still an underlying question that needs to be answered in light of these things. Why in the world would false teachers come to Galatians specifically trying to get them back to bondage from the law instead of liberty provided in Christ. Like, like, if this is such a radical and revolutionary and awesome idea, like, how do you even think you can sell it? Or why? Here's the answer. I have found that legalism within a church community, it often grows in the tree dish of fear and not faith. More often than not, people intentionally add ands and buts to God's freeing grace, not necessarily intending to limit liberty provided by Jesus and his work on the cross, but they do these things to safeguard against the abuse of that liberty. That's the motivation. (laughs) Think of it like this. While these people will concede, that grace gets the party started, man. You kinda need law to keep the party from getting out of control. Now, let me give you an example as to how the fear of liberty leading to sin uses the law to limit liberty in the sneakiest of ways, thus becoming gospel distortions. I have found that legalists love to play this game. So so roll with me here. Here's the game. You're free but you really shouldn't game. You ever heard this game played? It goes something like this. As a Christian, man, yeah, it's true. You are free to drink alcohol, but you really shouldn't because you could become an alcoholic or cause a weaker brother to fall into sin. As a Christian, you're free to dance, but (laughs) you really shouldn't. I mean, aside from the fact that you're white, you really shouldn't. Because you know it, in doing it, you might stir up sexually immoral feelings you won't be able to control in yourself or or in the people watching you. You laugh, but it's true. As a Christian, people will say, you're free to have non-Christian friends, but you really shouldn't. Because these relationships just might lead you down the path away from Christ. As a Christian, you're free to dress casually at church, but but you really shouldn't. Because it it could foster a culture of disrespect or immodesty among people, the people of God. As a Christian, okay, you're free to watch an R-rated movie or listen to secular music, but you really shouldn't because it'll negatively corrupt your thinking. As a Christian, you're free to smoke cigars or hookah, but you really shouldn't because it might tarnish your ability to be an effective witness for Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. All of those things are noble considerations. And there's some merit to them. But the entire approach is founded upon a fear of what could, or might, or may happen if you let people enjoy the liberties Jesus died to give them instead of having faith that the liberator know what he's doing when he sets people free. Not only is it true that any limitation of liberty is in and of itself a measure of bondage, but here's the kicker. The what could, might, or may happen when people enjoy their liberties is none of your concern. And this is where faith comes in, Right? While the Bible is clear that freedom yielded through Christ's sacrificial atonement on the cross does not provide a license to sin, God's grace undoubtedly liberates an individual to follow Jesus how? According to the power of the indwelling spirit, according to his own conscience. No one, because you've been liberated by Jesus, no one but the liberator has a right to limit liberty at all. This is why when someone says, Pastor Zach, look at, look at what that person's doing. They're at Top Dog having a beer. My response, if the, if, the, if the act isn't biblically sinful, is to respond why do you care so much? Why does that bother you? What's the big deal? Now, now being an outlaw church does not mean that we condone turning a blind eye to sin. That's silly. Like it's our job, biblically, to address sinful behavior. Why? Because it's inconsistent with grace. But it does mean that it's not our job to limit your freedom out of fear of what may or might or could happen. What happens when you engage in freedom is Jesus' responsibility. Why? Because he's the one that set you free. I didn't. You see, the underlying point Paul is driving home is that if Christ sets a person free, no one other than Christ has the right to say that person should or shouldn't enjoy their freedom, or how. Now, in order to to illustrate this reality, Paul will fast forward the narrative a few weeks from the Jerusalem council to a situation that took place when Peter had come to Antioch. Look at verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, Paul says, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, Peter would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, Peter withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. It should be pointed out that that Antioch was Paul's home church, and it was unique. Historically, most of the churches fell into two categories. Like the church in Jerusalem, they were predominantly Jewish, or like the churches in Galatia, they were predominantly Gentile. Antioch was a hybrid of the two, kind of an even split. Imagine the excitement in this church of Antioch hearing that Peter, the apostle Peter, man, dude that walked on water, he's going to come and visit they were pumped up, they were excited. Well, that excitement, it soured. In order to understand what ticks Paul off here, understand what happened. Something happens that ticks him off. According to Paul's account, during the first part of Peter's visit, what was he doing? He would eat with the Gentiles. However, when certain men came from James, what took place? Peter changes his behavior. Paul says, withdrew, separated himself, and no longer ate with the Gentiles. Now keep in mind the table, the act of sharing a meal in, in Middle Eastern culture was viewed in a much different way than we do today. Our meals, they're predicated how? An interesting balance between speed, quality, and price. Like that's how we determine eating. But in this society, the table It was the center of community and fellowship. Eating a meal, it was a slow and methodical process. Why? Because it really had nothing to do with the food. It had everything to do with the interpersonal connections and relationships that were being developed. Aside from that, you, you didn't share a meal with just anyone in that culture. The act of eating with someone carried a deeper, more mystical connotation. Instead of each individual ordering their own plate, everyone at the table shared the same meal. As such, the act of consuming the same food someone else was consuming, it was intimate, personal. In a sense, sharing the table with someone articulated oneness with that person, genuine commonality, (laughs) which, by the way, is why the Pharisees had such an issue with Jesus when he ate with whom? Sinners and tax collectors. In eating with these Gentile believers, Peter was doing something important. He was affirming two incredible realities. Because of grace, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. I'm eating with you. And two, because of grace, Peter possessed the liberty to do what? To eat food that was prohibited in the dietary laws of Moses. He's like, man, Let's break into this bread together. We're one. And man, I'm loving me some some pork chops. Pork chops. Cooked in pig fat. Sprinkled with bacon. I'm loving this. And yet, when Jews came from Peter's home church in Antioch, came from his home church in Jerusalem to Antioch, What does Peter do? He intentionally pulls back from the table of fellowship. And not only does Paul see this as, quote, hypocritical, hypocritical behavior on the part of Peter, but then Paul takes this one step further, which is important for us. Verse 14, the final verse we'll look at. Paul writes, But when I saw that they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel... I came to Peter before everyone. This is what I said. If you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why are you compelling Gentiles to live as Jews? Let me unpack what's happening here. You see, it wasn't just that Peter had stopped eating with the Gentiles when his Jewish bros arrived from Jerusalem. That wasn't just the issue. Paul here is enraged. Why? at the very idea or the notion that Peter, aside from separating himself, was also requiring the Gentile Christians to forego their liberties to eat a kosher diet. That's what ticks him off. Paul is enraged. Why? Don't miss this. He's upset when he sees a stronger brother limit liberty and the preference of a weaker brother. That's what's happening. Which explains why Paul not only withstood Peter for withdrawing and separating himself from the Gentiles when these men came from James, but it also sheds light as to the accusation that Peter was shockingly seeking to compel Gentiles to now live as Jews. Keep in mind, Paul's issue clearly wasn't The Gentiles, or Peter for that matter, eating non kosher food around Jewish brothers who might have been offended by it. Think about it. It's safe to reason that if that had been the case, Paul would have taken a different approach. He would have commended Peter and the Gentiles for their willingness to lay aside liberty so as not to offend Jewish sensibilities. That's not what happens. Instead, what appears to have ruffled Paul's feathers was the fact that Peter, a leader and an apostle in the church, was not only being hypocritical concerning his enjoyment of his liberty, but that he was now actively seeking to limit the liberties of others, specifically these Gentiles. And why would Peter do such a thing? Well, Paul says that Peter was to be blamed. Why? Because he feared those who were of the circumcision. What did Peter fear? Well, there is no question that Peter knew grace afforded such freedoms. It's why he was enjoying them. Freedoms for both the Jew and the Gentile. He had no problems eating in the first place. Peter, though, knew that there was a group of Jews from his home church who was going to be offended because he was enjoying a specific liberty. Peter feared their enjoyment of liberty would cause a division with those who were offended by such liberty. So, in order to avoid offending or causing division, Peter decides that it would be best that not only he, but all of the Gentile believers lay aside their freedoms and liberties for the sake of maintaining unity, and Paul loses his mind. Now, let's be fair. It's not hard on the surface to understand why Peter would take such an approach. If we're honest, at some point, we've all heard the exhortation to live at liberty in order to prefer the weaker brother. And yet, why does Paul blow a gasket? Because Paul views that approach to Christian liberty as what? He says it not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. You see, because Christian liberty only exists because of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, to restrict that liberty for any reason or in any way is to undermine the very nature of grace itself. Get out of its way. Let it do its thing. The fear of offending someone was hijacking the freedom Jesus died to give people. That's why he's upset. The sad reality behind Peter's actions, and what is often the fundamental driver behind the trappings of legalism, was not a failure on the part of Peter to believe the gospel, but a failure on the part of Peter to trust the gospel the fear of what may or could or might happen. And to protect the gospel message, Paul gets in Peter's face and he defends the freedom and liberty that these Gentile Galatians possessed. So, the logical question as we close. Is there a dynamic by which Christians, believers, should willingly lay aside our liberties? And the answer is yes. Honestly, though, I'm convinced that the key, and this is what changed for me, the key to fully grasping the radical nature of Christian liberty, because it always gets limited with the weaker brother, preferring the weaker brother. But the key to understanding this, it's when you realize, this is what blew my mind, that the only biblical limitation of our liberty occurs for the benefit not of Christians or maintaining unity, but that we should limit our liberty if we're seeking to reach the lost. That's when it should occur. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 one of the most famous passages, justification for the limitation of liberty. Let me read you what Paul writes. He says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the market, meat market, asking no questions for conscious sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. If any of those who do not believe, invites you to dinner, and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, of those who don't believe, this was offered to idols, don't eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and its fullness. Conscience, I say, not of your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I gave thanks? Therefore, whatever you eat and drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense, either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that, underline it, they may be saved. When Paul and some of the writers talk about their brethren, Who are they talking about? Their fellow Jewish brethren who are not Christians. You see, if your liberty restricts your ability to reach a group of unsaved people God is calling you to, as written in Acts 15, you would do well to lay aside that liberty for the sake of the gospel message. It was the sole reason the apostles end up establishing restrictions at the end of Acts 15. Why did they do this? They feared a growing Gentile church was going to make it more difficult to reach a lost Jewish community for the sake of Christ. To this point. How interesting that while our passage is clear that Titus was not compelled to be circumcised in the next chapter, Paul will write of another young Gentile man named Timothy who decides to be circumcised for one reason so he could be effective in reaching Jewish communities for the gospel. It was about reaching the lost, not about maintaining unity. Timothy made a decision to forgo liberty because he wanted to reach the lost. Understand, fear of sin in your life or that in the lives of others will always revert back to the natural comforts provided in the law whereas the liberty found in God's grace based upon the fact that he has set you free leads you to trust the liberator, to trust Jesus, to trust that he knows what he's doing. You know, Paul was always able to resist this trap. Why? Because he writes in Philippians 1.6 that he was confident of one thing. Confident. What was he confident about? That Jesus, who has begun a good work in you, is more than able to complete that work. That's what he was confident in. Jesus has set you free. Grace changes everything. So let it change you. And man, may I pray that it changes me. So Father, Lord, we ask,